This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Let's look back over this weekend because, yes, we did have a physical distancing rally, as it was called, and there were attempts to stay apart, but at the same time, there were over 10,000 people there. And there have been some concerns raised. There has also been simply some praise allocated for putting this together, for what it meant. Let's begin by talking with the executive director of the London Police Association, Rick Robson. And Rick, we really want to thank you for taking some time out for us. Give us your perspective on what you saw taking place this weekend at that rally. We'll get to Rick in just a moment. Rick, if I'm interrupting you and and you were speaking, I apologize for that. Let's try that again. Rick, your perspective on what you saw this weekend. Um, well, it was massive, as you suggested. It was uh, nonviolent, which was excellent, uh, well-organized, well-attended, and I think it was um, um, uh, the message of unification and unity was, was pretty strong throughout uh, the day. The involvement of London police, how would you have described that going in, and, and then we'll ask you how you describe it now that it is over and done with? We received a lot of positive feedback, a lot of positive comments for being there. Uh, Of course, I I was not in uniform when I attended. I was um, there on behalf of the association. I was there with the chiefs of police who were obviously in uniform. There were other members in uniform on the periphery uh, around Victoria Park, bicycle patrol officers, as well as our diversity officers were at the corner of the entrance near City Hall. And by all accounts, positive feedback and a very, very good message from the City of London. In terms of what you wanted to have happen at the rally from a, a policing perspective, was it was it a show of support for a number of people who were there? Absolutely. And uh, a show of support, a show of, of the fact that we are unified in a message of community, of having police as part of the community be something that is seen as a position of safety and to denounce what happened in the USA quite strongly and to represent all of the community and hopefully it's the start of um, and part of an ongoing part of the healing process and moving forward and getting to that place where we are in fact one community. We're talking with the executive director of the London Police Association, Rick Robson, about a rally at Victoria Park and certainly uh, it kind of was part of other parts of London as well that attracted what was estimated at over 10,000 people this past weekend. Rick, a lot comes up now in conversation about how policing is done. Maybe we can get a little behind the scenes in terms of how often that topic is simply dealt with in terms of policing, how often do you kind of examine, okay, here's what we're doing and here's what other places are doing. How should we proceed? Um, constantly. <laughs> the, uh, this is not a new topic for us. Um, as you know, the, the police budget is very topical. It's in the media uh, every time it's time to renew the police budget. And we get very strong challenges we get very 
deep dives into our budget and we get a lot of questions about what we're doing and how we could do it better and more efficiently. So we've had those questions internally, externally, when we talk about civilianization, when we talk about what we should and should not be doing. This is something that's been had by way of conversation provincially many years ago in terms of what is the responsibility of the police and what should be responsibility of the police and what should not. So a lot of that conversation has been had. I think we've identified a lot of, of issues there. Where we go from here, I think, is, is still a conversation that's, that's to be had. In terms of where we, we might go from here, is there anything to suggest that you could say, okay, based on past conversations, here's something that maybe we could step toward or maybe would improve things? Yeah, and, and the reality is that this has been stated publicly by me, uh, by the police administration, by not just in the city of London, but provincially and, el- and elsewhere. And this is not a new message. This is something that's been going on for quite some time. And our message has been and is consistently that if you take, for example, mental health, we'll use that as one example of of the number of issues that police are engaged in that we come under scrutiny and and sometimes harsh criticism for. And we, and when I say we now, I'm speaking for the policing community, have been asking for a long time for assistance to get out of that file. And that is lobbying government, that is conversations both locally, provincially, and and, uh, sometimes even federally. The reality is, until mental health is properly funded, that the police will continue to be involved in mental health interventions. And by and large, the reason for that is, nobody else is doing that work. There's no investment, uh, there's no there's no strong desire, I'll be kind of frank about this too, because when we have these conversations, the, the bottom line always comes down to the same issue, and that's money. And if we want the mental health issue to be addressed, it needs to be properly funded. That's not a new issue. That's not something that's not known. And until we get a government that is going to address that issue by properly funding mental health, uh, we're going to be in the same situation. We are talking right now with Rick Robson, who is the Executive Director of the London Police Association. And Rick, you just raised a topic that was raised last week on London Live by Rachel DeCoste, who is a uh, political commentator and someone who has been part of different rallies and, and tried to be an advocate in in terms of what is happening in our black community, in terms of what is happening in other communities. And she raised the, the issue of mental health and the idea that, you know, we do need to have people attending perhaps with police. Would it be something if, if we could actually have something like that where, yes, you may have a call if you could have someone go with officers to that particular call and assist if need be, would that be something that would be useful or would it have to play out in a different way? And there are models like that around the province. There are a number of policing agencies that have mental health nurses. So these are nurses that are specifically trained and experts in the the mental health field. And they are there to take the lead role in that particular issue. Now, that that sounds like a, a good idea. In some instances, it does make some sense. 
But the reality is that that is a tax. The reason those positions exist is because police agencies, funded by municipalities, have taken that initiative upon themselves to hire those experts. So they've now absorbed even more funding into their budgets to deal with that issue. That doesn't mean the issue goes away, and it doesn't mean that the issue is no longer addressed by police. What it means is that the issue is now being addressed in a different way by the police, ideally with someone with more expertise, more de-escalation training, and more mental health training that hopefully will become to a, um, a positive outcome for everybody. But again, that, that cost is still being absorbed by the police. So that doesn't really solve the larger issue. It, it's a different approach. And it's a different way of of tackling that issue. Um, But by and large, it's not going to do what we need to to do in terms of the mental health file itself. Rick, how surprised do you think we would be to know how much time is spent by whether it's police officers, whether it's firefighters, whether it's paramedics dealing with the same people, having the same problems, Almost night after night, sometimes if you and and nothing really can happen until something bad happens. Uh, I, I think it shouldn't come as a as a surprise because we've we've tried to message this out, but it is it is quite astounding, and, and we've had figures in some years where uh, the chiefs have released this information. The budget, uh, the, sorry, the board has released this type of information where fourteen their estimates are fourteen to sixteen percent of our resources in any given year have had some component of mental health attached to it. Um, And this is, by and large, where we've progressed through the years, because as belts are tightened on other agencies, whether it is the Humane Society, animal control, mental health, and everything in between, we, we came to a framework where funding was either cut or removed, or for whatever reason, uh, things change where the, the service had to amend. And a lot of these organizations turn out their lights and lock their doors at 5 p.m. Monday to Friday, and they are done. So when something happens after business hours, there is nobody else to respond other than the police or paramedics or, uh, you know, as is fired, depending on the, the circumstance. But there, there, there just aren't the agencies that, uh, should be out there um, that need to be out there other than the police. And the other default mechanism, as we see, sometimes it's a bit of a running joke about people calling police because they got pepperoni on their pizza and they, they didn't ask for pepperoni and they call 911. Um, and and that's, it's more sad than, than funny to me. But the reality is as well, many people will pick up the phone and they will call 911 when they don't know who to call they see a power line down or they see uh you know these are not these are not calls that i'm making up these are legitimate calls you know ducks crossing a road a goat that's been broken out of a pen a power line down uh an eagle in the city that's you know likely to come to some harm these are not police issues these are not issues that police should be responding to but there is no one else doing the work i just just you just mentioned uh, just before we started the show, a bear sighting in the city. Who is going to go to that call? <laughs> it's going to be. I can tell you right now. I bet you somebody called nine one one when they first saw a bear. 
I bet you they call 911. I bet you the police will, re- will respond, and there will be no one else that has the capability or resource to attend that call. And police aren't experts in animal control. We aren't experts in, nor do we have the capability or equipment to capture a bear. So police will be drawn into a situation where they shouldn't have been drawn into in the first place, and they will deal with it the only way they have the capability of dealing with it. And that'll be if the bear poses a threat to anybody in the public, they'll have to dispatch the bear. And there'll be a number of people who will not be happy without outcome. But, you know, um, Google, who do I call when there's a bear in the city? And you won't get an answer because the Ministry of Natural Resources does not have the resources, does not have the staffing or the ability, uh, capability to deal with that issue. And that's where it should lie. But it's not funded. So the default, like many, many other situations, sadly falls to the police. Well, Rick, I know we started talking about the Black Lives Matter London rally from over the weekend, and I know we got to a completely different topic, but I think it was a, a really important topic to get to, and, and I really appreciate the time and, uh, and the information. You're welcome. And just briefly, I think that's part of the issue is that the, they are related, and, and the reality is that the programs that should be in place, like mental health, addictions, housing, that aren't properly funded, then default to the police. And I think that's a big part of the issue. Okay. Rick, thanks so much for the time. Thank you, Mike. Take care. That's Rick Robson, Executive Director of the London Police Association. Yeah, he is right. I mean, they're, they're, I, I didn't mean it to sound like they were one in the same 100% the way through. But as Rick says, no, they're... You know, there are things that the police are called to do that we need to realize they need some assistance with. And I think when Rick pointed out that the default to anything, I see an eagle in the sky, I see a bear in a tree, I didn't get the toppings I wanted to on my pizza, the default winds up being the police a lot of times. So how do we stop that? And as Rick said, you have organizations that work very hard and in a way some of them will have their work spill over into the weekend but it's not like somebody is on call in order to deal with a mental health issue so that becomes something to think about the key in all of this that we are talking about again now rick said this is not the first time this has been discussed and it's not the first time it's been presented to politicians And what is the answer? Well, the answer is more money. So how do we deal with that? Well, those are questions we're we're going to have to keep asking that are going to have to be entertained by the parties involved to actually get to the table to talk about all of this. And then where do we go to make things better? As we began to address COVID-19 months ago, think back for a second. What sorts of things would take place? You would identify whether it was a business or whether it was an organization, and what would they do? They would have to stop in their tracks. They would have to shut down, and in many cases, backlogs began. If you can't manufacture your widgets, you can't send those widgets out. So that was something we were dealing with very early on, and it started happening with regard to elective surgeries in healthcare, 
And in our criminal justice system, it basically started a backlog. Now, it would be one thing for everybody just to throw their hands in the air and say, well, this is too bad, but I don't know what we're going to do about it. Instead, the minds started thinking. And in justice, in law, we've got a lot of good minds. And they have come up with some things that are going to perhaps lead us into the future into can we can we hope for it a, a better system it's one that continued uh, for a long long time it's one that you could argue was working could take on the odd improvement depending on how you felt the idea is they have looked at it and now we have had perhaps some changes made to it that we may see for a long long time joining us right now to talk about this is andy Reddy, who's the president of the london criminal lawyers association as we look at the effects of covid19 and what it's had on our court system andy thank you so much for being here my pleasure andy let's kind of look at how things because i i generalized in a big way so how things did change when some of the protocols and some of the restrictions that the covid 19 pandemic brought what happened legally well what happened is the courts came to a shutdown our courthouse is still closed and most of the courthouses in the province are closed our courthouse underwent a uh, a major cleaning uh, there are still people who go in and out of it, but everything that we've been doing in the justice system has either been adjourned, put off, or done uh, virtually, usually by telephone conference. So it is a major change to what we were uh, experiencing before, and a shock to a lot of people because, uh, frankly, we weren't ready for it. And I think that speaks in the same way that a lot of different organizations, systems would describe it, that nobody was really ready for it, whether it was parts of healthcare, whether it was education, nobody was really ready for, for what this was. So what has this meant? Because nobody has kind of sat idle and thrown their hands in the air. What have we seen from the law? What we've seen is something that we've been actually trying to do for the last 25 years, and then that is modernize our system. Um, we've basically been a paper-driven system. Uh, everything's on documents, signatures, whatever are on paper. And now we are going to a more electronic system where paper filings in court will be done electronically. Um, because in this day and age, everybody who practices law has to be uh, or has to have a computer. And if it's sent electronically to the computer and doesn't need to be printed out, and we help that out, it's going to save a lot of time and save a lot of uh, people having to go to the courthouse to file things. We'll file things electronically. That's one of the major things. The other things are dealing with court appearances. And some, the sort of usual appearance where the accused appears and it's a pro forma, it gets adjourned for three or four weeks. Why have everybody go to court? I mean, you know that's what's going to happen. And what we've been doing with those, th those things now is people have been able to telephone in and uh, and the lawyers and uh, talk to somebody who's probably not in the courtroom and the judge or the justice of the peace is not in the courtroom and have that done. Um, and if we can do it in the time of COVID, why can't we do it in the future? And I think that's what where we're leaning. I think that COVID is going to cause a great modernization of our criminal justice system. Andy Rady joining us, president of the London Criminal Lawyers Association. When you mention everything on, on paper, it, it sounds like 
lawyers might have been the greatest purchasers of fax machines all across the land. Were things still being carried out very much like that? They were, and it depended on where you were. I mean, <clears throat> for example, disclosure in a criminal case, that's the synopsis of the police case and evidence. In some places, they've been given electronically uh, on your computer by Internet. Sometimes uh, they've been given on a, a disk. Uh, and uh, I have a case right now where it's been given on a thumb drive. Uh, before, it would be boxes and boxes of the printed disclosure. And the trick now is is to rely on what you have on your computer screen without having to print it off. But you're absolutely right before. I mean, lawyers are probably the biggest killers of trees out there. <laughs> now... Is this a safe way to do it? I, I think about prisons that used to say, hey, we would love to operate on a completely electronic system, but here's the catch. Electronic systems can go down, and when they go down, we lose a lot of information that it's good to have right here in, in physical form. So how much does that matter in the justice system? Well, it does. Um, you don't want things to go down sort of in the middle of something. You don't want to lose the documentation. So, I mean, in what is being developed now, they're going to have to be backups. Everything is going to have to be backed up. So if something is lost, there's a backup on another computer someplace else. As far as going down mid-force because the Internet crashes, not much you can do about that. It's not much different than being in the courthouse when the power goes out. Um, the other uh, uh, thing is you've got to be careful because if we're going online, uh, hacking, and we all know everybody. there's a lot of hacking going on out there. And if these are sensitive matters, we're going to have to make sure that our system is uh, uh, protected uh, to the best we can from people trying to hack in. Andy Rady joining us, president of the London Criminal Lawyers Association. Andy, before we close out, can you give us a sense of how things look to be progressing within the justice system and perhaps looking at the courthouse and, and the kind of schedule it will have to accommodate? Well, the provincial courts, the Ontario court, is scheduled to try and start up again on July the 6th. Whether that'll happen, I don't know. And that's not going to mean, you know, the throngs of people in the courtrooms. In the superior court where jury trials are held, it's uh, been decreed that we will not have any jury or trials before September, and it may be after that, because there's certain matters of trying to get jurors together in close proximity, and that's another issue. I think we're going to see some more things that are done. You know, if there are things that are not particularly an issue, just one side and the inside, other side arguing, they're going to be done virtually on Zoom or some other platform. But the old-fashioned trial where someone's credibility is uh, on the line when they're testifying, I don't think we're going to see those in any kind of a virtual situation because body language and observing the person is necessary and observing them in two dimensions on a screen is not the same as being in court and seeing them. So when that's going to come back, that remains to be seen. And a lot of us in the justice system, uh, we would like to know that answer, like when we can set trial dates for, but we just don't. And it'll all depend on how we go on the, the COVID curve. Um, and whether there's, uh, you know, down the road, whether there's a, a vaccine or something for it. Um, but right now, whatever is done in court will have to be social distance. They're putting up plexiglass. But again, that only works for certain matters. Right. Now, 
you raise a, a really interesting point, though, about sometimes having to go to court to make arguments that may not last very long. Could we see those basically play out over Zoom and, and save lawyers an awful lot of time? We can. And one of them, for example, are appeals. You know, the Court of Appeals sits in Toronto. They have other sort of semi-conviction appeals locally. But an appeal is an argument done with uh, up to now paper filing, but now electronic filing of, of documents. And those would be easy to be to be argued uh, uh, on, uh, you know, Zoom or some other platform such as that. Uh, things where there are not a lot of things in issue and it's basically argument. Those can work fairly well. But when you have cases involving uh, people who who told the truth or who's lying and you have to determine credibility, those are going to be ones that I think are going to still have to be done in person. Well, we really appreciate your time, Andy, and outlining all of this. Best of luck in in seeing how all of this plays out. I can't imagine how the backlog will be absorbed, but you know what? We've got a lot of intelligent minds who will figure out a way. Thank you very much, and I'm sure we'll figure it out. And, uh, uh, you know, we're all working on uh, knowing the backlog now. Well, we're going to try and deal with it as, as, as well as we can. Andy, stay safe. You too. Thank you very much. That's Andy Reddy, president of the London Criminal Lawyers Association. So, again, things did get stopped. They have not been restarted. But you look around and you say, okay, how can we actually save some time? And not just the time of lawyers in this case, but how do we save the time of the criminal justice system? Where instead of having something that, well, this is the way we've always done it, the lawyers come in, they make their case, as Andy points out, with regard to something like an appeal, then the appeal is heard, then that's decided, it's all done in person, it's all done very formally, and there is something to be said for that, but could this be done more informally, where you did get the parties involved, and a judge, perhaps, in what we would picture as a zoom call and they play it out that way next thing you know you've got a whole bunch of these done bing 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 and it's saving the time in the court system and because we're dealing with a backlog right now they have to find ways to do things more quickly they have to you have to find ways to say okay these here in this big big pile were being done in person now they can be done virtually And that will ease some of that backlog. And again, the time frame has not been announced. Thank you for all the feedback at Mike at 980cfpl.ca in terms of things that we can look into on this Phase 2 reopening. Got a note from Natalie which says, wait a minute. They are going to open the cesspools that are outdoor splash pads and yet there are restrictions on the insides of restaurants? That's a valid question. That's a valid... I I don't think we should necessarily call them cesspools, but at the same time, little people with dirty diapers run around those all the time. I don't know, when we had our kids young enough to enjoy those, uh, we enjoyed other things instead. But I can get it, you know, it's a way to cool down on a hot day. Not in effect for tomorrow, remember, and tomorrow's supposed to be the hottest day of the week. We're still trying to figure out everything that comes with Phase 2 
reopening. We're still trying to get our heads around that, and there are a lot of ambiguities, it seems. There's a lot of vagary, it seems. So we've already booked a few guests for tomorrow, and maybe it'll take a day to digest, and then we'll get more. So we're going to talk with a restaurant tomorrow that has a patio, with a restaurant tomorrow that does not have a patio, kind of compare and contrast what is going on there. Uh, we are also due to speak with Minister Jeff Urich tomorrow. And so he is the Minister of the Environment, so we're going to look at some of these outdoor open-air areas that would come into play. Something that we need to talk about right now is businesses that are already up and going based on previous announcements before this one and some of the changes that have taken place. We know that when you had to go to the dentist for a few weeks, you just couldn't unless it was an emergency. So now that has been changed even before today. And in fact, dental offices have been reopening. And joining us right now is someone who can help us to understand a little bit about what that has meant. And, you know, this this is, you know, an interesting thing to deal with because, again, it has a lot of uncertainty. Joining us from Aria Dental Center is Dr. Hassan Mustafa. Dr. Mustafa, thank you so much for being here. Hi, Mike. How you doing? Nice to talk to you again. Hey, it's great to talk to you. All right, uh, let's kind of look at the reopening of Aria Dental Center last week and, and kind of how that went. What would you have done early in the week and what happened later in the week? Well, um, as you know, for the last three months, we were uh, kind of shut down along with almost the rest of the province and we were only uh, really seeing emergency patients uh, and doing as little as possible to try to limit the spread. Um, eight days ago, the province and the Royal College of Dental Surgeons uh, basically gave us the green light to reopen and treat patients for non-emergencies and for elective treatment, um, but under very enhanced guidelines. And so things are looking a lot different uh, today. Last week, um, even though we were allowed to open last week, last week is all about uh, training and getting the protocols in place, getting all of our PPE and all of our all of our necessary changes ready to go in the office. And today actually is our very first day of, of really seeing, uh, seeing uh, not a full slate of patients, I'd say about a 50% slate of patients. Okay, then let's look at how being a patient works under the College of Dentistry where everything is kind of laid out. So normally, here's what I would do. Uh, Dr. Mustafa, I would, I would go in the door, I would check in at the front desk, I would sit down, I would wait to be called by the hygienist, and then I would go through my experience at the dentist. And it was, it was just like clockwork every time you went in there. How does it work now? So it's going to be a lot different now. Uh, so when patients go to their dentist, uh, they're really going to have a, a, a different experience, and I think they're going to notice a big, and, uh, big change in terms of the level of screening and PPE. So it starts really with the first phone call. Uh, when you call to make that appointment, before that appointment is made, um, the dental uh, office is going to ask you a series of screening questions. Have you been traveling? Do you have any symptoms? Have you been in contact with an unknown or probable case of uh, corona in the last 14 days? And if you screen negative for those, then you get it and the appointment is made. And then when you arrive for your appointment, you'll receive, at least in my office, you'll receive a text that says, don't come in yet, stay in your car. Um, and you get asked those very same questions again, uh, just another screening. 
And then once you screen negative, then you will, you're then asked to come into the office. Uh, when you come in the office, right at the door, there'll be a sanitization station for you to, to sanitize your hands. Um, if you don't have a mask of your own to wear, you'll be given one to wear. Um, you'll have your temperature taken, and if uh, all that passes, then you'll be escorted directly um, to your treatment room. So there's no sitting in the waiting room. There's no magazines. Um, it's, it's right to your treatment room where your hygienist or your dentist will have the appropriate level of PPE, and then you'll go through your regular treatment. And the exit process is almost the same. We're talking with Dr. Hasa Mustafa from Aria Dental Center, and we're looking at what going to the dentist is like right now. So separate levels of screening, and we can think back to when we were watching a lot of news stories, whether it was people in airports in Europe, we would see temperatures being taken, airports in China, and in taking the temperature of someone, what exactly are, are you looking for, and maybe how even is the temperature being taken? So we have those digital uh, contact-free uh, thermometers that you see um, on TV and that uh, many institutions are using. Um, and that's just one small layer of screening that we're using. I mean, obviously, if you have an elevated temperature, um, that, is, that is a cause of concern. But, of course, we're concerned with people who might potentially be asymptomatic carriers. Um, and so we do our best to, to screen out for that as much as we can in order to provide a safe, um, safe appointment for our patients and for our staff. It is the new normal. What's it like dealing with it so far? Um, so it, it, it isn't too bad. We've uh, developed a bit of a routine through our training uh, last week, and um, our patients have come in. They've uh, they've been impressed with um, the level of care and effort that we've been put that we've put into our systems to to make things safe. Um, of course, we have had some patients who are you know are a little hesitant and uh, may want to wait a little while longer, and we totally understand that and we've had had a few patients that kind of have screened positive we're like you know what let's play it safe let's keep your cleaning now and let's let's look at it again in a couple of months really so that's happened already and and kind of that's the way it goes and and they will go home and and maybe even go and get a test i suppose from something like this well it's it's not so much that they're symptomatic maybe they've traveled maybe they came from Ah. uh, from bc or something or it's really based on, on the screening protocols. We want to screen out as much as we possibly can anybody that might be a possible case for corona. Because in, in a dental environment, I mean, you can't do the two-meter social distancing. Um, <laughs> we're working in people's mouths. So you can't work from home as a dentist. Um, so it's important we keep it as safe as possible. Well, hey, we appreciate you outlining how it is all going. It is good to know that we can get back to the dentist because I think a lot of us are kind of sitting here going, you know what I could use? I, I could actually use a good cleaning right now. And that's not something that tends to pop into your mind. I think it's certainly there now. Dr. Mustafa, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Mike. Have a wonderful day. Take care. You too. Keep safe. All right. Bye-bye. That is Dr. Hassan Mustafa from Aria Dental Centers. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 